On this edition of Retronauts, we are endorsed by George Plimpton. Hi, everybody. It is Retronauts. Thanks for joining us once again. I'm Ray Barnholt, and with me is the core crew, just the core guys, the founders. Bob Mackey with me in the room. Hey. Jeremy Parrish with me out of the room. And I was actually part of the crew of the core of the movie. We we started the Earth's uh, rotation again with nuclear bombs. It was amazing. We saved the planet. Congratulations, yes. That's some quality science you're uh, engineered from there. That was, that was another one of our stretch goals. And on this week's show, we're talking about the Intellivision you know, it wasn't too long ago we were talking about the ColecoVision, and then before that we talked about uh, Atari's life, and then even way before that, I believe on the show we just talked about the 2600 proper. So now we're just sort of covering the next in the pantheon of great American-made game consoles of the early 80s. And I, uh, yeah, I have to say, uh, Vision seemed like a pretty common suffix for uh, yeah. video game-related things, like Activision, Intellivision, ColecoVision. Right, yeah. You were entering a dimension of sight and sound. Yes. <laughs> and Intellivision is definitely part of that. Uh, I didn't have, you know, direct uh, experience with it until, like, I was a teenager and started, like, collecting th- those uh, three systems and stuff. I don't know about you guys, Bob. I have no experience with this yeah. thing. In fact, I would always confuse it with the ColecoVision until we, our ColecoVision <laughs> episode. Now I know a lot about both. <laughs> All right. So well, thanks, Retronauts. You see, yes. <laughs> and, Jeremy, you were in the ColecoVision ecosystem back then, but... Uh, Yes, I was. Um, and television actually predates my um, my video game home console ownership experience ah. by a couple of years. Uh, the closest I came to actually experiencing my uh, the the Intellivision was uh, my my aunt's husband, who I am reluctant to call my uncle because he's an asshole, um, <laughs> owned a an Intellivision when I was probably like three or four years old, four or five, I don't know, and uh, never let me even touch it. Because he was just kind of a creep that way. Okay, great. <laughs> and so occasionally I got to watch him play amazingly lifelike baseball games, but uh, that was about it. Oh, he was afraid you'd lose the controllers. <laughs> that was a joke because they're attached to the console. Yeah, <laughs> I guess, because they're so tiny. Yeah, I never really understood the controllers. I've never really used an Intellivision, so those discs really baffle me. I'm, I'm eager to learn more about Intellivision on this episode of Retronauts. All right, sounds good. And by the way, we always get some great family details here on the show, don't we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had yeah. no abusive family member or asshole family member that had an Intellivision, so... He wasn't, he wasn't abusive. He was just well, a creep. Emotionally abusive. Anyway, that's all. Who's on trial here? No, more good. like Listen. emotionally distant. There we go. Any adult that keeps you from video games is abusive. I'm sorry. So, <laughs> in television. Uh, and, of course, by the way, this is a backer-requested episode topic from Adam Heberling, who, uh, you know, was a big Intellivision fan himself, so he gave us a lot to talk about. But first, I would just like to tell you all a bit about the Intellivision, because not everybody is that into it. So, it was released in 1980 by Mattel, the toy company. And that, you know, 1980, at the, uh, the golden age of games, it was like... It was a time when you could expect anybody to start making video games. That's why we had, you know, like 2,600 games, you know, from like Purina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they made some good cat food Co- yeah, and Coke some good wins. platformers. Yeah, I mean, 
Just uh, everybody was on the bandwagon. And so toy companies were like the next best candidates aside from Atari because like video games were considered toys for so long. Oh, one bit of trivia is that Tom Kalinske, uh, who became Sega of America's first president, mm-hmm. um, was worked at Mattel during the Intellivision. He had nothing to do with it, but yeah. people were taking out of his division to work on Intellivision. I see, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's from yeah. Console Wars, the, yeah, the, the new book. good book. Uh-huh, yeah. If I can interject something here, um, the, the toy – Connection to video games is actually something I've been reading a lot about and thinking a lot about because of, um, you know, writing about Game Boy's history because so much of the, uh, the handheld gaming space really ties into portable, uh, electronics and toys that were kind of kid oriented. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's really a, a really, I think, potent connection between toy makers and video games. And it did kind of make sense for toy makers to make these things that were called video games, you know, games. Um, and Nintendo, of course, has a huge, huge background in, uh, in, in toy manufacturing. It's something they don't really do much anymore, but in, in the 60s and 70s, of course, you know, they kind of made their big break with Ultra Hand, uh, that little gizmo that, uh, Gunpei Yokoe created. And then they licensed, uh, or not licensed, but they had, um, a Lego competitor. They had all kinds of race cars and electronic toys. There's a blog called Before Mario that uh, really goes into detail about a lot of this stuff. I recommend everyone check it out because it's really kind of fascinating to look back at, um, you know, just how much history Nintendo has with toy manufacturing. And and it really, uh, to me, I don't know, like there is this very clear connection between toy makers and video games that tends to be kind of overlooked a lot when we talk about game history. People tend to think more of in terms of Sony, Microsoft, Atari, like these Silicon Valley computer companies. But, but you know, the toy industry had just as much uh, to do with, with video games as any electronics company, which is, uh, yeah, like Intellivision kind of brings that all home, I think. Right. And even still, even though we have these big electronics companies making video games now, I mean, people still kind of equate them with toys. Yeah, at least uh, at Toys R Us, they had a major footprint in that store, yeah. the video game section. And hey, on the local news, when they do the hottest toys of the year around Christmas time, you know, in the consumer segment, they'll be like, hey, here's the new game console, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. It's- if pow, video games aren't just for kids anymore. Yeah, exactly, of course. That's my second favorite headline, too. This guy gets paid to play video games, uh, which is still being written. Stop it, everyone. Of course, of course. You're in trouble. Right. <laughs> Pink slip from Bob Man. Yeah. Red card. <laughs> All right. So, so uh, Mattel uh, eventually came into the market with the Intellivision uh, soon after Atari was sort of dominating the space in a way and after, you know, these – Cartridge-based game consoles were supplanting the all-in-one Pong systems and and whatnot, what have you. So the Intellivision, of course, being released a few years later than the 2600, I mean, the graphics were kind of a step up from the Atari. Uh, Not not, not exactly a leap, but... uh, They feel like the the 16-bit to the Atari's 8-bit. Yeah, I'm, if you can make that comparison, I don't know if you would buy that. That didn't occur. to Well, me. that's literally the truth. Actually, it's actually the truth. Oh, in, in terms of pure mathematics, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I remember that in television's commercials were kind of the first to make a big deal about lifelike graphics, and you know, really kind of pointing out the the horribleness of Atari's graphics compared to the Intellivision's graphics. Yeah. So to me, that's kind of where the console wars began. Yeah, and George Plimpton was leading the charge. That's right. Yeah. He made some powerful enemies. (laughs) Those conservative pundits just really love to bring us into war. 
<laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, Mattel got George Plimpton, Plimpton of all people, to get to sort of be the pitch man for Intellivision. Um, part of that was because you know one of the uh, often stated advantages that uh, Mattel had was the fact that they got league licensed sports games, mm. uh, specifically the the Major League Baseball game, which I think was like one of the top sellers on the platform. And so you know you would have the commercial with George Plimpton comparing an Atari baseball game and the Intellivision baseball game, and look how much more lifelike this is. And of course, looking back at that commercial now. It's like, well, it doesn't really make a lot of difference. It's still basically functionally stick figures running around like a green screen. But, it could uh, be the powder blue. But they were more properly proportioned stick figures. Yeah. That's very important. But that's, you know, that's been a tenet of video game marketing since then, basically. Mm-hmm. It's like, of course, the new guy in the block will have better graphics than the old guy, and look how you should run out and buy it. Uh, so, yeah, that, was, that sort of definitely kind of started with the Intellivision, sort of the old school Golden Age console wars. Uh, speaking of graphics, you know, many in television games, they use like a standard sprite for a lot of characters. It was like a – it's called the running man sprite. Hmm. It's like this – just this basically stick figure looking guy with like this very elaborate sort of run walk cycle <laughs> to him. And so you saw him in a lot of different games, all the sports games, some of the action games like Night Stalker and things. And so, I mean, it's kind of funny because like you have basically a, a standardized sprite <laughs> that sort of became like the focal point of the platform. It's not like every NES game had a Mario sprite in it. It's not yeah. like we all recognize that. So that, that's kind of interesting. It was the uh, the Unreal Engine three of the golden era. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> it was. Yes. It was part of the toolkit. Part of part of the platform. Yeah. Um, I just think that was pretty. That's fun. the level of technology. Like that kind of looks like a human being. Wow. What an yeah. achievement. <laughs> We've done it. <laughs> Uh, so also, as for the console itself, uh, like the ColecoVision later, it had two wired-in controllers uh, with uh, keypads. Yeah. And uh, But that's not the worst of it. It's that <laughs> <laughs> to control uh, the games, uh, you had a directional input, which was a flat disc. Let I'm going to call that. this um, a steampunk phone. Sure. It's like a phone with a gear stuck to it. <laughs> Let me repeat that. A Sorry. flat disc. No grooves. No sort of... <laughs> No reliefs, no nothing to sort of yeah. indicate which direction you were feeling or pointing towards. A flat disc that you pushed in at the sides. And, uh, yeah, I mean. And its legacy sort of lives on in virtual D-pads on iOS games. Oh. Pretty much. <laughs> one, one thing you neglected, Ray, or maybe you're getting to it, is the, the classic phone cord, the cu- classic curly Q phone right. cord that your mom would, like, twirl around her fingers right. while she talked on the phone or your grandma. It already, it already has, like, you know, the, the 12-digit keypad. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So why not have a, a curly cord to go with it? Uh, so yeah, I mean that was just I, I don't get it. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. Uh, <laughs> Am yeah. I just too young? I, don't, I just don't. I don't get keypads. I definitely don't get the flat. Listen, disc. we'd washed our hands of the rotary phone. We were onto the yeah. touch dial phone. We were so psyched about that. We wanted it everywhere <laughs> yes. in every piece of technology. Uh, and yet, despite that, uh, the Intellivision did uh, gain some popularity and uh, gain some fans along with it. So, that's basically it uh, as far as like the, the, the television in a nutshell. Uh, but now I'd like to go on to like uh, what we're going to talk about mainly. And uh, our uh, contributor, Adam, he gave me like a list of like almost a dozen different things about the Intellivision that he liked or was interested in. 
And this is just like a basically a random assortment. So like rather than go through the usual sort of chronology like we sometimes do on the show, I thought we could just go through all these things as he gave them to me. It, it might seem a little bit uh, erratic, but you know, just uh, deal deal with it. Calm down. <laughs> We're just going to go on a bit of a, a crazy intelligent trip here. There's only really three years to talk about, right? Yeah, like eighty to eighty three or seventy nine to yeah. eighty three. Something. And of course, like that. there was like you know some late sort of things like later models of it, and sort of you know there's bits of Intellivision that lived on through the 90s, basically, mm. into the early 90s for a couple of years. And so, you know, these things we, will, we shall talk about. So uh, first up is something that Mattel was going to make for the Intellivision called the Keyboard Component. Now, of course, we talked about the ColecoVision and how, you know, they were they had the Atom and everybody was trying to like uh, bolt on these computer type things onto their game consoles to try and join the computer revolution of the early 80s. And so Mattel was not alone. They tried to make a keyboard attachment to try and upgrade the Intellivision to a proper PC. But uh, it didn't really uh, end up shipping, I suppose. And so they were taken to court <laughs> because of that because they failed to make their promise. Oh, yeah. And I, uh, they were forced to pay $10,000 a month by the FTC. Wow. And uh, eventually it was released sort of, you know, uh, after the fact, you know, after they got their crap together. And uh, But it was a very limited run and, it you know, it didn't really catch on. So they discontinued it. And instead they made a – Sort of alternative called the Entertainment Computer System, uh, I, uh, not quite like an Atom, and because that was more of a dedicated computer. I don't know, but anyway, fact is they tried to make a keyboard, didn't work out. So they about made that. a lower priced, lower, lower powered alternative. Yes, Bob. Oh, I saw. I watched a promotional video for the Intellivision on YouTube. It's really entertaining. It's maybe mm-hmm. like twelve minutes long, but uh, a huge section of it was devoted to this keyboard. Yeah, and you could tell that nothing was finalized because all of the quote unquote graphics for this thing were just video effects that were like <laughs> created within like a video editing system, <laughs> like star was, wipes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like wipes and numbers and things like that were that oh were an incredibly gosh. high you know resolution that would not be in any way <laughs> replicated by the Intellivision. No, of course. But one thing I noticed I love about all these old computer. Um, promotions it's like a big thing is like making lists it's like free yourself oh, right. from the tyranny of the notepad make a, <laughs> yes. make a grocery list on your $300 computer yeah. just it's, it's so silly and cute. by sitting down at a desk at home yeah and spending minutes upon minutes and one other thing is like you put in all of the um like food you have in your house this is a proposed idea and then it would like make meals for you throughout the week what if you're like <laughs> my computer wants me to eat tuna salad all week what do i have to yeah, do this now exactly. i just like yeah i don't know how you, that would work yeah you would still have to have some programming skill to really yeah. make it seem like an ai that was programming your your meals i'm really fascinated by the ftc's fine for uh for the company's yeah. failure to release a promised product can you imagine if that had become a precedent for the video games industry at large can you imagine how much yeah, money yeah. sony would have paid about the last guardian by now oh god yeah <laughs> i was thinking like closer to the n64 uh dd i want a million dollars from nintendo until i get that vitality sensor yeah <laughs> <laughs> it'll be part of the quality of life just you wait yeah no doubt <laughs> um so yeah, that's the keyboard component. Another point here, uh, just other sorts of accessories for Intellivision. Um, there was the keyboard thing, uh, but it also like uh, tried to add like a musical type keyboard, you know, like music creation. That uh, there was also the Intellivoice, which was like a speech synthesis box that uh, plugged into the system, and that got a little bit more play than the keyboard did, just because you know more games were supporting it, and it became just like that hot thing, like oh, the game is talking to me. <laughs> Uh, you know, back in the time when that was just yeah, would never happen in any other sort of uh, area unless you had a, a, a extra box that can cost more money and plug that into that. Yeah, I'm sorry I neglected this in the voice acting um, 
episode. Oh, yes. I knew I missed that one. Yeah. Very important origin point you missed out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there was the system changer, which let you play 2600 games, and that was a lot like uh, the ColecoVision attachment that came later that let you do the same thing. So it was that <laughs> whole sort of uh, crossing enemy lines sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um the thing is, I remember Atari giving Coleco guff over that thing, but I don't think a television got all that much heat for it. Uh, I could be wrong, but I don't remember reading about that really. Uh, but basically, you could uh, still have all of those things attached with the Intellivision, and uh, Adam likens it to like the Tower of Power on the Genesis. You know, <laughs> you have the 32X and the Sega CD, and then you can stack up any sorts of Game Genies or Sonic and Knuckles you want. Maybe not as bad on Intellivision, but. Uh, <laughs> Just to give that more of a uh, better analogy for those of us who are a little bit younger. Something else about the Intellivision was, of course, uh, the fact that they released extra models of it. Uh, you know, the Atari, the Atari 2600 got the 2600 Junior later on, and ColecoVision got extra renditions of it as, you know, it waned in popularity, but, you know, could probably get some people to buy it as a lower price thing. So Mattel released the Intellivision 2, 3, and 4. Uh, the Intellivision 2 was basically just the same thing, not much uh, smaller, I would say, exactly. Same sort of controllers, unfortunately. <laughs> but they were making, like, actual, like, sequel systems, Intelligent 3 and 4, and uh, so, but they kept getting delayed, and, like, the game, the market crash meant that, you know, that wasn't really going to be a thing anymore. Uh, However, uh, NTV Corporation, which did sort of become like the holding company of the Intellivision brand, they did release an Intellivision 3, but that was just like a rebranding thing. It was just like, yeah, here it is again. That's all. So, so Ray, a question for you. Do you know anything about the planned specs or information for Intellivision 3 and 4? I've never really heard of those. Uh, I'm curious if there were, there was actually, a, uh, you know, like a hard concrete plan for those, and they had it specced out kind of like, you know, the 7800 could have gone uh, and been, been vaporware, but it actually came out. But I'm, I'm wondering if it ever kind of got to that point where they were ready to go into fabrication, or if it was just like, a, oh, it's a thing we'd like to do. Yeah, I think it was, you know, there's a lot of marketing hype that started with it, but then, like, the ColecoVision came out, and apparently all the things that they were promising about this next Intellivision were already sort of made obsolete by the ColecoVision and the way its games looked and everything. So I think they just sort of like, uh, you know, stuck their tail behind their legs and walked away with it. I, it did have like a new video processing chip in it, uh, but, and some extra RAM, you know, all the sorts of things that we would expect, new sound and all that. But again, uh, the basic thing is that the ColecoVision came out and they were just like, oh, never mind. Okay. I'm, I'm looking it up here and according to Atari Age, the Intellivision 3 was intended to be the successor of the Intellivision with improved, improved graphics, extra RAM, integrated IntelliVoice, an oh. extra sound chip, more controller ports. But according to uh, one of the posters on their forums, it died of feature creep, which, uh, you know, is a terrible fate that could have beset the PlayStation 3. Yeah. That's all. <laughs> of course, no, yeah. Can you imagine? Jeez. What a shame. Anyway, moving on. Uh, something else that Adam put on the list was the whole area of Atari Soft and M Network games. Um, and this is kind of tangentially related to Intellivision, but uh, Atari had basically set up a subsidiary called Atari Soft that would make uh, ports of their own games and properties for the other consoles. <laughs> so uh, 
because Atari had locked up so many of the arcade licenses like Pac-Man Space Invaders and stuff, they would basically make versions of these and put them on the other systems. So now, bizarre. This is basically like a shareholder and uh, dim-witted tech blogger's dream, right? Because <laughs> even today, it's like, well, Nintendo should just quit and make games for everybody else. It's like, well, yeah. It happens. <laughs> We can we can we can tell them how silly they are, but then they can probably just fall back. Well, Atari did it. Yeah, <laughs> and look at them now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but Atari was was kind of uh, pretty eager to produce games for everyone. I mean, they had Tengen, which was basically a way to get Atari games onto NES back in the days when they were competing with NES with the seventy eight hundred. That was just kind of a I don't know, like a thing Atari did, but it seems to be kind of unique to them. I can't really think of any other. First parties who published on other people's platforms. Yeah. But Atari, Atari Soft was, you know, the, really the big one. And so they were also making like Intellivision versions of like Pac-Man, for example, which is uh, allegedly, you know, much better than the 2600 version. I say allegedly. It seems pretty obvious <laughs> if you know the 2600 version of Pac-Man. Oh, yeah. Um, but even Mattel went the other way. They had their sub-brand called M-Network, and so they released a few games that had originated on the television on, like, 2600 as well. Uh, for example, Night Stalker was turned into Dark Cavern. So, I mean, these games sort of – they were functionally the same, but they were put, made uh, – they were given different names. Was that post-Night Stalker Murders? <laughs> Uh, I have to wonder. Maybe that was the name change. You are Richard Ramirez. Yes. <laughs> Dear God. No, I don't want to be him. <laughs> um, so the funny thing is that the M Network games that they were basically housed in the Intellivision cartridge casing, but the bottom the ex- the bottoms were bigger to fit the Atari Two Six Hundred. So it's like you have <laughs> what looks like an Atari television cartridge sticking out of your Atari. Pretty funny, but yeah, I just think that's that's really one of the fascinating things about that whole industry. It's like uh, it just seems so odd. It was almost like a courtesy. It's like, well, you know, we locked up Pac-Man, but here you guys can have. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it almost seems like that, but uh, I mean, I guess Atari just wanted more money. <laughs> and that was one of the ways to go about it. They didn't have quite the same kind of uh, hubris that I guess Nintendo would today, yeah. or, or anybody else making games, uh, because everything is you know much higher stakes as well. So, I mean, it went both ways. And I guess if you <laughs> look for Atari Soft games on television, I would, I, would, I would suppose you might find some of the better ones on there. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, you know, Coleco had also put games on the television. I mean, we all know the Coleco Atari version of Donkey Kong and things like that. They did release that. Um, maybe a bit more obvious to people, but uh, they were not as good. Their Intellivision versions were not as good there. I don't know. This is a conspiracy? Maybe. I yeah. mean – People have people have said as much. People have thought as much, but uh, you know, you can't prove it. Yeah, <laughs> I guess it would make sense, but then also, why waste the resources doing it to begin with <laughs> when you could just say ColecoVision's better? Um, yeah. Anyway, just silly, just silly fan theories. So next up, one of the other great little things about the Intellivision were the controller overlays. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, it had a keypad, so you would have overlays. This was revisited later on the Atari Jaguar, of course, and I believe it might have happened on ColecoVision. I uh, can't remember off the top of my head. Kind of brain farty today. But uh, yeah, every game pretty much came with an overlay that you know would tell you how to properly play it with the keypad because that's all you had other than the, the than the disc. You know, you didn't really have any extra buttons necessarily. Yeah, I would I would say the the idea of controller overlays is just sort of an, an alternate or an alternate take on. The idea of screen overlays, which mm-hmm. was common with uh, Odyssey 2, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. also the Vectrex, Vectrex had that as well. Yeah. You know, because those were kind of simple black and white 
consoles that needed a little bit of help to fancy up <laughs> yes. their, their graphics. Put kindly. Um, yes. This just kind of shifts that to uh, be less on the screen and more on the, the contained controller area. I don't think... I don't remember Coleco having any of those. Certainly mm-hmm. none of the games that I own did. But... Um, I definitely played some PC games that had something similar, you know, the key maps. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that seemed to be kind of common in the 90s, which I guess is not quite as, not quite as, uh, unique as the, the control overlays because they were just something you put next to your computer. Yeah. But, you know, the idea definitely lived on. I, I would say the, the Intellivision version is sort of the midpoint between Odyssey 2 and Command and Conquer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, Final Fantasy VII on PC had a overlay for the for Whoa. the, for the uh, numpad. Wow, that's, that's uh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> chew on that. Uh, but yeah, I, I I like the idea of overlays. I mean, it, I think people uh, sort of view it as another just another piece of nostalgia about those games because they're all in the box and it's just sort of like, I mean, they can get ruined pretty easily. I guess if you're a kid and you don't really take care of your games too well, and so a lot of people just they did not really stick with their games that much. The overlays did not really uh, stick with the games that much. Um, and so, you know, a lot of overlays were lost and it's hard to get them again if you try and get the games secondhand or something. Um, but, you know, people did start to sort of reproduce them. Um, somebody, a fan called Psycho Stormtrooper, started making like replica overlays uh, for, for, for a lot of games and even even still, even though you know they were mass produced in that way, years later they were still hard to find and sort of in high demand. So, I mean, they they can still there are a lot of money on eBay, according to Adam. Hmm. So, but uh, they're out there, and like like I said, I mean, it is kind of a cute little thing of that era. Just the fact that you had these sort of custom made uh, overlays with special art on them, and like I said, it was really the only way to really know what you were doing as you were feeling around on this keypad. I mean, sure you could read the manual. But to have like a quick reference you know, as you're trying to push 12 buttons instead of two or four, you know, not bad. Um, and also, you know, I, the ColecoVision, I guess, did not really have them that often just because they had two side buttons on the controller to go oh, with the keypad. Yeah. So, I mean, it seemed more obvious that, you know, whatever you were doing, whether shooting or jumping, like that would be only – you would only need that one button on the side there. And I think that was just also like an extension of the whole toy thing. Like why not make these overlays? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels like you're, you know, you're setting up to play with a new toy. There are many pieces, yeah. so. Yeah. And of course, it contributes to jacking up the price later if you're collecting them. Yeah, uh, <laughs> why not? Throw, yeah. throw all of those things in the box. Yeah. Um, so another sort of uh, publisher of Intellivision was uh, iMagic or Imagic, uh, because it's based on Imagine, and apparently we have listeners who get very upset when we do not pronounce that correctly. So. How do you say it? Imagic. Imagic. We were saying iMagic yes. before. Okay. Because you know it's not like that's. I blame I blame Steve Jobs. Yeah, please, <laughs> might as well. Um, anyway, uh, Magic was uh, they they made games for everybody pretty much. Uh, at least on twenty six hundred, they had some standouts, but uh, they were also very good on the television. Uh, they were very visually impressive and had a lot of good uh, gameplay stuff to them. Uh, Adam calls out a game called Safe Cracker, which has a very basic sort of isometric open world for you to like drive around in. Um, you know, I guess that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, especially if it's isometric. Yeah. Um, cause like, I, what else is there at that time? Like Ghostbusters, I guess. And that's not even that open. Yeah. I mean, what, what that's, that was, what that's bringing to mind. I haven't seen Scape Cracker or heard of it, but it's bringing to mind like the, um, 
the NES version, I want to say, of Roger Rabbit. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where you just kind of wandered around, or maybe it was Dick Tracy. It was one of those games from around that time. Both were like that. Like, kind of mediocre. Yeah, okay, yeah. So you just kind of wander around freely and tried to figure out what the heck to do. I guess Ghostbusters was also kind of like that. Yeah. Maybe that was just like a thing, like this sort of proto-GTA-licensed game. What do you do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, funny how it only pop up mostly with licensed games like that. And, and, you know, as we discussed before with stuff like Jaws and things, like, they always seemed to be in over their heads when they were making these licensed games. So yeah. I was a bit too ambitious, but, uh, <laughs> I guess it makes for interesting historical footnotes. Anyway, uh, Magic also made Demon Attack, which was a, uh, single screen shooter, uh, and that was also on Atari as well, uh, which is also pretty good. Uh, Adam also notes that it had uh, pretty terrible box arts for what it was. Um, it's like just what, what, wait, wait, wait. Demon I, Attack was the one with the spray painted Godzilla with jet wings, right? Because that's not terrible no, box I, art. I, that's amazing box art. I have to agree. <laughs> I don't know exactly why you would think that's terrible, but I guess a terrible and ironic love sort of way. Uh, <laughs> I guess. Just like at the height of televangelism, they released a game called Demon Attack. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yes. Well, it wasn't called Dungeons and Dragons and Demons Attack. So oh, maybe that's, that's true. That's why it slipped under the radar. Dodge that bullet. Um, anyway, the game was pretty similar to another like arcade shooter called Phoenix, and that was also on Atari 2600, published by Atari. And apparently they got a lawsuit for that because it's a bit too similar. Hmm. So uh, be careful. Uh, actually, that reminds me as well. Like, one of the standout like launch-ish games for Intellivision was um, uh, Astro Smash, which was you know uh, inspired by asteroids, but it was also like a uh, Space Invaders type setup where you would just like sit at the bottom of the screen and shoot these asteroids that were raining down, and they would also get smaller and stuff. And that's actually you know one of the better uh, Intellivision games. And um, Mattel did have an internal development group uh, and they called themselves the Blue Sky Rangers mm. and you had a lot of people responsible for a lot of those favorite games like that and um, and there was also uh, somebody else from there Keith Robinson he would he would go on and sort of bring back the Intellivision brand with the Intellivision Lives uh, compilations and stuff and sort of just keep things uh, alive uh, today those guys you know they apparently loved what they did enough to want to keep it going so yeah Good for them. Yeah, so something I want to, uh, to, to kind of bring things back around to that, um, to that box art. And Magic actually yes. kind of had a trend, a habit of doing these, uh, like, go, you know, going to a hobby shop and buying a bunch of sci-fi spaceship models and just doing Frankenstein mashups of things, kit bashing basically, spray painting them silver and then turning that in like a photograph of that into box art. And I don't know yeah. if you saw it at E3, but in the classic gaming history museum area, this year, they actually had the kit bash for Star Voyager, which consists of, I'm looking at the photograph of it here, it's the, like, two of the back hulls of the Millennium Falcon, and then that's sandwiching the, uh, the back thruster section of an Imperial Star Destroyer, and, uh, then they just smushed it all together, painted it silver, and took photos of it in an angle where you couldn't quite tell what it was. But, I mean, it's pretty much they just went and bought some Star Star Wars models and, and spray-painted them and said, okay, that's box art for us. And that's kind of awesome. I love that. No one could ever get away yeah. with that with, with video games these days. <laughs> it's one of the, the kind of weird, quirky, goofy things about, about classic games that I really love. So yeah. it was really cool to see that model actually up close in person in a display ah, case. Yeah. yeah, not bad. Shame I missed it. I have photos if you want them. Okay, great. <laughs> one more note about that box art. You know, the Atari version did have the rendition of the flying jet space Godzilla, 
But the Intellivision basically had like a reinterpretation of that art. It was more artistically advanced, I would say, but it was basically the same sort of concept, just like these flying – uh, demons, you know, Godzilla-ish, dinosaur-ish kind of guys just assaulting the planet. Um, if I had my druthers, I would choose the Atari one, but because uh, <laughs> that seems more terrible than the Atari, the Intellivision one I've, I'm seeing right now, and that's Demon Attack. <laughs> I'm looking at the painted one now, and it's just it doesn't have quite the same panache. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so what else can we talk about? Well, there's some things from later in in time. Uh, there's In TV Corp. Now, after Mattel, you know, was done with Intellivision, they decided to get out of the game business entirely. So, again, some of those developers of uh, those games got together and they sort of kept it going and started this company called InTV, uh, Intellivision, right? Anyway, they were uh, basically there since the end of the Intellivision officially was supported, and then they were around till 1990, and they kept putting out Intellivision games, and because you know they were so. Uh, late stage that they were kind of advanced games and kind of technically impressive for the system. You know, it just it happens all the time, right? You get guys that sort of like try and squeeze out every last drop of power out of the system because everybody's so uh, knowledgeable about the technology. And so that was in TV Corp. And apparently they were appreciated for the stuff they were coming out with. But even then, they still had to give up the ghosts eventually. And uh, so they in, tried to transition to publishing NES games. NTV did. So we basically have the Intellivision company making NES games, but uh, again, they only managed to release one game <laughs> for wow. the NES, and that was Monster Truck Rally, which is basically just like an RC program clone. Hmm. Never played it. Yeah, I mean, probably went way, way under the radar. But there you go. That's basically the <laughs> the the final nail in the coffin for the Intellivision legacy as we knew it then. So. Interesting way to go out, I would yeah. say. <laughs> and I mean, it didn't have that much that much time on our plan. It had three years, one million, I guess, estimated sales. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you think that we use in trouble? Look out, buddy! Right. <laughs> I know different times. <laughs> no, no, it's what everybody wants, right? Yeah, that and iOS games. Pile on, of course. Let's head back to that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and Monster Truck Rally was not even that good. So there you go. And then later on, you know, there uh, I did mention the Intellivision Lives compilation. This came out like in the later later nineties. Uh, just sort of, and we've, I believe we talked about this before on the compilations episode that I did. Uh, but you know, following the line of the Activision collections and all the other sort of arcade PC stuff that was coming out, the uh, the Blue Sky Rangers basically came back and released Intellivision Lives, which was a compilation of Intellivision games for uh, Windows. And uh, it was it was not. I mean. It's not super commercially done or anything. It was kind of like a self-publishing effort at the time. But after that, they started releasing more Intellivision Leaves uh, things for like Xbox and the other consoles and stuff. So they, they really kept it going uh, pretty much up until today. And then that also included uh, being included in the uh, Xbox Live Game Room, uh, which we have talked about, I'm sure, I believe, on past incarnations of Retronauts. Mm-hmm. And so this was basically, you know, Microsoft's sort of endeavor to get a like giant compilation of games digitally and you'd have your avatars running around your custom arcades and things and they had a you know, just a pile of games from the Atari 2600 some arcade games as well and again a lot of these in television games that showed up in the, in the past compilations um so Adam, he says he liked the idea of behind game room probably cuz they had television games why not uh but uh and 
and you know, he's, the into, the emulation was pretty accurate, and uh, I would say that that was the case for pretty much all those games on Game Room. They were well handled technically, um, and you could also you know, watch replays of players playing these games. And so, you know, if you had someone going for a high score in Astro Smash, say, mm-hmm. you know, you could go ahead and watch it. And so, Game Room did have some good ideas, but uh, it was not fully supported in the way that I think we all expected it to be. Nope. Uh, and so it just sort of, and then, the, and then the developer of it basically went bankrupt and that basically sealed its fate. Weren't there like a bunch of games about to be released for that thing or yeah. for release? They just never came out. Yeah, pretty much. Like something. Yeah, I think so. What a shame. Yeah. But it did have uh, some Konami arcade obscurities. So. <laughs> Puyan, right? And Mr. Goimon. Except there was no music in Puyan because I think it was – they just stole music and uh, – Oh, right. Yeah, they had to take it out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, reminds me of something else but it's too much of a tangent. I like Puyan. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Puyan reboot 2016. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I, I, would like to, I would like to hear this tangent. I'm actually curious now that you brought it up. So It's OK. Uh, We're allowed to have digressions. In Retronauts. You're right. Fair enough. Thank you. Anyway, I was thinking of uh, the uh, – on PS4 in Japan, they just came out with uh, Bomb Jack, the original arcade game. And uh, that had – like by the by the time you reach the second stage, there's like a rendition of Lady Madonna by the oh, Beatles. Oh, wow. And so, of course, now when you play the PS4 version, the second stage is like a completely different tune. It's like <laughs> – well, almost. I mean they added extra, extra notes to sort of like muddle out the Beatles parts of it. So. <laughs> If we can further digress, I just yeah. watched a uh, a Let's Play of Mighty Bomb Jack a yeah. few months ago, and that's the first time I ever realized how you actually play that game. Oh, yeah. I had no idea. I would just, I would just sit down with him and be like, you, okay, I guess I jump around and stuff, but then uh, somebody told me there were rules, and they're just all unspoken. Great series of Games RCX episodes. Yep. You should watch check those. those out. Okay, yep. Cool. Yeah, they're, they're really good. They're on the DVD, so you can watch them legitimately in English. Nice. Right. No. No, uh, no, having to sneak around to find. Does him. Troy Baker dub Arino? No, there's I no, know. I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> That'd be great, though. No, it's Nolan North. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so that's basically has that's pretty much in television as you know it now, officially anyway, uh, because of course you know like so many of these long gone retro uh, platforms and stuff, there is a huge contingent of fans who loved it back then, and some of those fans have programming skills. And so there is also a big Intellivision homebrew scene, hmm. just like there is with the other classic consoles. Some of them were uh, previously unreleased Mattel games as well. Um, that was also something that happened at least with like uh, the Activision anthology. Like they would release unreleased games as well as including um, homebrew games in there. So there's like a bunch of different homebrew games you can get. I mean, I can't even really begin to name all of these, but there's you know there's Tetris clones. There's like a unreleased Tron game. Uh, there's an unreleased Yogi the Bear game, by the way, called Yogi's Frustration. Wow. <laughs> Sounds like a badly translated Japanese <laughs> title or something. I know, right? <laughs> the Frustration of Yogi-san. Um, <laughs> there's also a... Oi, boo-boo! Boo-boo! <laughs> Boo-boo-tan! Oh, God. What have I done? <laughs> uh, D2K, which is like a uh, uh, sort of Donkey Kong 2, basically. Uh, I think that's yeah. on other platforms. Pixel uh, Coleco as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I always see the guy who made that shopping it around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've seen it at the cons before when we were at the cons and things. So that's also on the television. So there's just like a- yeah, you're talking about the the improved version of Donkey Kong. Yeah, with like some extra stages as well. Yeah, it's really it's really good considering uh, kind of where in televisions Donkey Kong started. Yeah, that was that was one of those that you mentioned that Coleco did. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, supposedly <laughs> the theorists say uh, to to make people want to buy a Coleco vision, but I think mostly it's just you know. Uh, Incompetence. Yeah. No offense to the people responsible, but yeah, the um, the homebrew version of Donkey Kong is really, really good. For one thing, Donkey Kong's not green, 
Um, so that's a that's a good start. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, not crazy, Kong Kong. Uh, there's also an enhanced uh, Burger Time stuff. So yeah, just a bunch of different games. Uh, uh, Adam did give us some links to these things, and I'll make sure to include those in our blog posts. Um, so yeah, look forward to that. Uh, <laughs> so a big homebrew scene, and we and I always enjoy seeing people sort of keep those systems living. With good games as well. That's the thing. I mean, sure, any Joe could probably make a homebrew game. But, you know, if you actually have the wherewithal to make it good, that's what counts. And, uh, yeah, we're probably worth uh, giving them money for that. Uh, one last thing as far as, like, the history goes. Uh, there was uh, an EGM April Fool's joke from uh, not too long ago, at least in the last decade or, or so. Um, <laughs> there was an April Fool's joke about the Giga Intellivision mm-hmm. in EGM. Um uh, what else can I say about that? Just another. Was that EGM during the Ziff Davis years? I believe so. Uh, yeah, if I remember right. And if yeah. so, how do I not remember that? I don't know. Maybe it was just not. Wow. Not one of the uh, bigger, more talked about ones. Well, yeah, but I mean, I was working there, so I would have, you know, like seen it. Oh, it might have heard I think about it, was it even before that. Oh, okay. Yeah. That would explain. Like at the beginning of the decade. Early 2000s. Yeah. Okay. Not quite as trolly as the other ones, I guess, because yeah. not everyone was a huge Intellivision fan and expecting some sort of revival. But uh, yeah, uh, but Adam apparently was young enough to believe it, hook, line, and sinker. So, <laughs> And uh, that's one of the things – that's basically all that he uh, listed for me, all of the things that he reminded – he remembered, excuse me, of the Intellivision. So fond memories of that. You know, history is all good and all, but uh, Intellivision did have some good games as well. So Adam did also give me a list of, you know, about half a dozen games to talk about. Um, some of these I know, some of these I didn't. Um, first of all, there was an advanced Dungeons & Dragons game. Oh, yeah. I watched a YouTube video of some yeah. of that. It looked really ambitious yeah. for um, the time. Like, Again, super ambitious. Yeah. Again, this is one of, you know, uh, like I said, Mattel had some big license grabs, not just sports games, but also D&D. So they got a D&D game going. And, uh, you know, this is based on the pen and paper game, but uh, Adam would say it has more in common with, like, survival horror games. Hmm. Uh, you're, I mean, it's not a full-on RPG in that, in that sense. Uh, you are limited to whatever arrows you find along the way, and you can hear dragons and demons and stuff in the distance, but you can't really see them until you step into the same room. Uh, so until then, they charge at you. So it's almost like a roguelike in a way. Hmm. That's <laughs> I'm just cool. thinking of, like, you know, when you have... Uh, the sort of foggy space in front of you, and you don't see uh, enemies pop up until the last second. I'm, uh, real D and D rules might work like that, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I buy the survival horror. Yeah, thing. I mean D and D D and D started out, you know, kind of building uh, individual campaigns and adventures around wargaming miniatures. So that fog of war element actually kind of you know ties in with very very classic D and D, which is of course what would have existed at yeah. the time of of Intellivision. Um, but the the game dis- the description of the mechanics actually kind of makes me wonder if they were looking to something like Wumpus, Hunt the Wumpus, mm-hmm. uh, as they were as they were building it. It has that kind of similar like you know something's in the maze with you, but you don't know where it is, and you kind of have to guess. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I, I'd like to check that out, uh, especially if it has kind of a proto roguelike 
mechanic yeah. to it that's really kind of ahead of its time. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh, but there were other uh, games like that at the time as well, like uh, Temple of Opshai. Um, was that on Coleco? I can't remember. But anyway, uh, things like that, yeah. I mean, it was sort of like a burgeoning genre there. To have it also as like an officially licensed D&D game is kind of cool, I think. Um, there was another D&D game called uh, Treasures of Tarman. Uh, Adam describes this as a first-person dungeon crawler slash roguelike. I mean, yeah, I I would guess so. I mean, I haven't actually played it myself, but uh, but uh, he was surprised how well it held up, even if the interface is a bit clunky. So you did have sort of like different uh, interpretations of of the franchise. Basically, you had this sort of game that was not like a first-person game as we sort of imagine computer RPGs of the time, basically. But then you do have one that's first-person and more more closer to it, but. None of these seem that complicated as, say, wizardry, for example, just because of uh, you know probably natural technological limitations, or maybe just you know people didn't really figure it out exactly until then. Who knows? Anyway, uh, there was also a port of uh, Commando on Intellivision, mm-hmm. uh, Capcom's Commando, I believe, and uh, so that's just a good thing. Adam just says a good port, uh, given the limitations of the system. The gameplay's there, level layout's there, even the music is there. So, I mean, it really speaks to, you know, how much that Intellivision could handle, uh, you know, compared to the Atari especially and, and maybe even the ColecoVision in some cases. Uh, it's just that, you know, the graphics were not all that high detailed. So, but it's funny. I think Intellivision is respectable to me in that way. Hmm. Um, next up is Utopia, which is kind of a uh, uh, SimCity-ish, Civilization-ish game. Uh there was a competitive mode, two-player versus mode, where you basically had to manage the economy of a tropical island uh, and avoid pirates and hurricanes and rebel uprisings, uh, I guess, uh, closer to Tropico, I guess. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, uh, but all in that same sort of wheelhouse, yeah. I'm sure that also came to mind. But uh, yeah, so uh, that's also pretty interesting because, you know, the 80s is when SimCity was coming into the mind of Will Wright as mm-hmm. he was making Raid on Bungling Bay as well. And so... Yeah, the game that I believe was released uh, earlier than that even. And it's just like it's, – it's kind of funny. Again, we were just talking about like these roguelikes and RPGs and stuff. It's just, like everybody was sort of like getting the same ideas, sort of being inspired by everybody at the same time and just sort of like building up these genres in these early days. And uh, yeah, you have a great example of it here on in television with Utopia. Trying to trying to figure out where video game ideas began is kind of this infinite rabbit hole because yeah. <laughs> you just keep finding more and more obscure examples where there's that like this idea is kind of hinted at here and oh they started yeah. developing something along those lines over there like you've never heard of this PC game but yeah like twenty people played it back in 1978 and probably one of them was Will Wright or whatever and then you know you look even further back and you can see precedent for it and electromechanical games and tabletop games and other other kind of inspirations that existed before video games. Yeah. So I've, I've kind of found or de- determined that it's basically a futile effort to figure out exactly where a video game concept started and just sort of say, this is the first one to do it right. Well, it may be futile, but people still have fun with it. No, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, just uh, there's no there's no way to plant a stake and say this it's, is the beginning. Yeah, it's like tracing an art movement. It's like, yeah, okay, we know that there were some guys who got together and painted in a certain style, and maybe some other people were inspired by them, or maybe some people started doing things that were similar but didn't really know about these other guys, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's so. just like Pac-Land predates Mario Brothers, but who cares because it's Pac-Land. <laughs> sure, right. Super Mario Brothers. Uh, now we should do an episode on that, all, all the Namco things that came before Nintendo. Wow. So. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, like Bar Duke and Metroid. Yep. yep. 
And uh, Namco is Space Invaders, right? Oh, I think a Taito. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, never mind. You mean Galaxian? I apologize. Uh, yeah, wasn't Radar Scope like Galaxian? Uh, yeah. Okay. Pretty much. I mean, again. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> that's of. when everybody was ripping off Space Invaders. That's true. Oh, that's true. I guess Galaxian is a rip off of Space Invaders in some yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> Where are we? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> In television, just one more game I wanted to mention. Uh, Adam brought up a game called Snafu. Uh, he says, I think we touched on this in the music episode recently. Uh, but he just wanted to say, once again, how catchy the music was in that game. Yeah, by some accounts, that's the, the first video game to have background music. Um, at least as far as I could research, that seems to be true. <laughs> yes. uh, it, but the game itself was actually just kind of like a snake game. Yeah. Hmm. So not really original in that sense, but... You know, notable because, hey, they did something with the audio chip besides bleep, bloop, bloop. And finally, uh, a game called Night Stalker, as I mentioned before. This is actually, this is, you know, among all the Intellivision games that people talk about, I hear this one talked about quite a bit. And uh, it is Adam's favorite Intellivision game, he says. Uh, he also lists uh, an anecdote from the Intellivision Lives website. Uh, and I quote, Russ Lieblick was proud of his sound effects for Night Stalker, especially the constant heartbeat. Whenever he heard someone playing the game, he'd run into their cubicle, grab the volume control on the TV, and turn it up full. So, yeah. <laughs> proud of that. Uh, yeah, so that's it's, it's basically a maze game, but it, you know it's Night Stalker, so it has a very gloomy feel to it. And um, yeah, it's uh, no relation, I think, to Kolchak the Night Stalker television series from the same. <laughs> <laughs> Just a coincidence. Yeah, so many Night Stalkers. What about Capcom's Night Stalkers? Uh, oh wait, no. it's Dark Stalkers. Never mind. Yeah. Dark Stalkers, the Night Warriors. <laughs> oh, right. What about Nightshade for NES? No, definitely no relation. Uh, <laughs> probably for the best. All right. Um, but yeah. So yeah, that, I mean, that was, um, uh, that was one of the games I played for television, at least on the uh, compilation. Hmm. And yeah, it was kind of fun. Uh, very interesting. Um, I sort of likened it to Berserk. In a way, I mean, not exactly the same, but it does remind me of it uh, quite a bit. And so, you know, you did have that uh, on Intellivision quite a bit. Like I said, Astro Smash is really similar to Asteroids. Um, so you had these games that were like different interpretations of classics that you knew. And it was basically just, you know, for some people, for some companies, it was a way to just like get on the bandwagon and make some extra money. But some people did actually, you know, treat it well and make some good games uh, based on that. I just want to add one thing before we leave this episode, and it's about George Plimpton. As much as we joked about it before, <laughs> yes. I do want to lay this out. Like, I, I was watching, I don't know, Hulu or whatever, and I see uh, Aaron Paul from Breaking Bad squandering his gifts by doing an Xbox commercial. Mm-hmm. And I'm sick of the like the cool spokesperson. I want the like dusty mid fifties unmarried history professor type spokesperson who eats a lot of pate. He wears nice sweaters, tweed jacket. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> I want the George Plimpton of the of this decade to come out and start talking about PS4. Yeah. And like you know, he knows he knows he knows better. He knows better than us. Who is that? John Hodgman. Um, it could be. Yeah, maybe <laughs> He's already done Apple after another, another decade. Yeah. I was just trying to think of who that would be. Yeah, yeah. John Hodgman's a good one. Um, I, I, don't know, I think John Hodgman's too actually. Funny. You know, I think Brian Cranston before Breaking Bad would have been a good choice. Hmm. But now people are like, oh, it's, it's Walter White. Yeah. So that wouldn't work so well. Maybe someone like Al Franken. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone else. You know, I like these video games. <laughs> Dear Lord. Yeah. <laughs> uh, good question. Something we didn't really talk too much about was the fact that Intellivision had much, much better arcade ports than Atari 2600. I right, mean, we, yeah. we did touch on that, but we, I don't think we really gave any specifics. No, and sure. I mean, just kind of in browsing around for this episode, I found some really great examples of, of very good looking video games. Obviously, you know, Donkey Kong was crap, 
But Donkey Kong Jr. was actually really, really solid. Not as good as ColecoVision's version. But, like, if you look at it, it's definitely recognizable. The mechanics are all there. The layouts are all there. Um, Qbert was also kind of oh, yeah. uh, pretty impressive for, for the limitations of the system. Like, they really captured the look and style and mechanics of Qbert, which is kind of tough given the, the sort of artistry and the visual style uh, of the game. And uh, it even had some of the later games. You mentioned Commando, but also Bump and Jump, which I kind of associate as being a, a later arcade game. Yeah. I guess that was 1982. Oh, wow. But, um, but uh, yeah, like that kind of weird racing game top-down where you also jump a lot. Um, yeah. Pretty, pretty strange choice, but it looks pretty good on a television. Yeah. Not bad. I still love the NES version, <laughs> which is more of a remake, but... <laughs> right. And we also didn't talk about Microsurgeon, which is... To me, probably the most iconic in television game, mm-hmm. even though it's not actually that fun. Yeah, you're right. It's just so weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you give us a gist of it? Man, I don't even really get the game, <laughs> but basically you're playing like... It's not a shooter. It's not... I, I don't know. You're kind of like roaming through a human body, like through innards, and yeah. trying to get rid of bacteria and disease and viruses and stuff. But the, the way the game is presented... It, like, starts you out with basically the living cadaver. I mean, you, you see a human body sort of uh, sliced oh, yeah, right I open. Know that picture. So there's, like... Fun for the whole family. Yeah, it's it's horribly grotesque, yeah. but it's it's so so unique and so iconic. It, it really, like, maybe not a good idea for a video game, but definitely a memorable one. Yeah, no kidding. And there was nothing, nothing like that on Atari 2600, despite... That system's, you know, the way it was just kind of like a, a breeding ground for creativity. And, you know, despite the fact that ColecoVision had uh, much nicer graphics, like, yeah. in television, I don't know, like, to me, Microvision kind of shows the the sort of unique personality of Intellivision. It, it was a little, maybe, like, not as good a video game, but but it was kind of like nothing else. Yeah. I think if you look at, like, the 2600, you can uh, point out, like, in Activision's work was you know they had some good concepts behind them and they made some fun games but nothing quite as off center as microsurgeon was and i think you did find some extra examples of that on television hmm. uh even night stalker to like some degree you know uh i can't really t- totally articulate why so maybe i shouldn't even said anything but like <laughs> at least microsurgeon is one of those standout games that we look back now it's just like yeah wow why was how <laughs> how was that released in like the early 80s and it became um, trauma center yeah. Years later. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I th- I think you know on on Atari twenty six hundred you had Activision who had a really like their their programmers and designers had a really intuitive grasp of what made a good video right, right. game, and you know they wouldn't have made anything like Microsurgeon because what's the point? But uh, you, you had you know kind of maybe not not top of their class designers working on Intellivision people who I mean okay. That sounds kind of douchey. No, I, um, <laughs> I get it. I mean, you know, there there was some really cool stuff on Intellivision. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but but you know, Activision's people were sort of fired in the crucible of Atari Twenty Six Hundred at its peak, and they were sort of the best of the best, and went off and sort of formed their own unique uh, elite group. And um, you know, Intellivision is kind of it's almost like. You know, AAA games versus more indie games or something like that. You know, you have, like, yeah. just good polished concepts, and that's what Activision was laying down. And then you have the weird stuff that's more experimental, more like, let's just do what we can. And that was, that was in television. To me, that's, that's kind of the, 
the bigger divide in personality between the two systems, more so than any technical differences. Mm. Yeah. We are forgetting one in television game that doesn't exist. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to blow your minds with this. It's uh, Lee Carvello's putting challenge from The Simpsons. <laughs> a parody of Lee Trevino's fighting golf. But in the credit sequence of that episode, when you see Bart playing the game, uh, Lee Carvello tells him to hit number keys. Yes. So uh, he could secretly be an Intellivision game. Yeah. Because that, that was the one thing that didn't check out with me when I watched the episode. It's like, why is he telling Bart to hit number keys? <laughs> this is not like any console that was out in the mid-90s. But right. it could be an Intellivision game because The Simpsons were poor at some point. Yes. So maybe uh, that was uh, – for the Intellivision with the the voice mod yeah. attached to it, and I'm sure that's whatever uh, stuck out in whoever wrote that. Yeah, yeah, it stuck out in their mind. Somebody had an Intellivision on that staff, so yeah, they're yeah. like, "Yeah, number keys, why not?" Yeah. <laughs> Again, yes, I have indeed. to reference that episode often. No, I mean it makes sense. I mean it is a uh, celebrity licensed sports game. Oh, that's true. Yeah, so I never thought about it that way. If anybody was going to release it, it would have been Mattel. Yeah. <laughs> at the t- <laughs> Yeah, Lee Trevino is one of like five golfers I know because they had video games associated with them. <laughs> yes, exactly. F- Fuzzy Zeller was that a guy? Uh, I don't think he had a game. Okay, I know, I know, I know Arnold Palmer because he has a drink named after him. He does. <laughs> and that is a very unimaginative drink. <laughs> yes. Way to go, Arnie. Jack Nicholas. Um, there was a Japanese golfer, but uh, Jumbo Jumbo Zaki's yeah. Hole in One, which was just released here as Hole in One yeah. Golf. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that that does it for at least all the points about Intellivision that Adam wanted us to talk about, and so we thank him for that. But uh, as we close out here, I just want to bring up one thing. So we've done episodes on Atari. We just did one on ColecoVision. Like I said, I think we've covered the American game console pantheon of the boom days of the golden age, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I think we can safely rule out the Atari as like the king of the heap as far as popularity, market share, nostalgia, all those things. So by now it's just like a battle for number two, I would say, hmm. between Intellivision and Coleco. So should we uh, should we make a declarative statement here on the podcast? Should we uh, choose one of these as the number two? What do we think? I mean, uh, sure. I mean, I've had a, a direct experience with Intellivision and ColecoVision. I had them when I was a teenager when I was collecting things. Bob, I didn't know. I didn't have you. either of these. I never played either of them. Jeremy, not really. But, uh, you know, from what you guys have seen, what we've talked about, eh, what, what do you think? What do you think? Uh, I might lean towards Coleco. All right. Uh, they just seem to have a more robust uh, game library mm-hmm. and they don't have the uh, the anchor of that that awful keyboard attached to them, you know, that sure. never did what it was supposed to. <laughs> yeah. It ex- it was like 2K RAM instead of 64K, yeah. yeah. But even Atari stuff. was going to have a keyboard or did. True, already, true, yeah. true. Everybody was on that. Could I write my grocery list on a ColecoVision? Uh, probably. Okay. Yes, you I could. Okay. Speaking as someone who did homework on a ColecoVision, well, the Coleco Atom, you could definitely do a laundry list yeah. or okay. a grocery list or both. Both, both. <laughs> Can, did, they, did they have tab browsing? I should do both. <laughs> Let's not get crazy here. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy, how about you? Are you with Bob, you would say? Or what? I guess so, yeah. I mean, I honestly haven't had enough personal experience with Intellivision. But just in terms of the the visuals and the interpretation of classic games, I, I feel like ColecoVision tended to be really strong. I mean, there there were some really excellent arcade ports, some interesting original games. The uh, the fact that the Atom was a more realized, actual, existing thing 
as opposed to uh, in television's kind of furtive, desultory attempts. Like, to me, that counts for a lot. Um, the fact that I used it counts for a lot. But I would say, sure. you know, even, even if I try to be objective about it, I do think ColecoVision was a better system. But, you know, it came later. It, it, it was kind of the next step beyond the Intellivision. So, it, you know, it, it, it's kind of not fair to Intellivision to compare it to a, a system that was basically the next-gen console compared to it. But mm-hmm. yeah, there you go. Still, uh, George Plimpton's ghost will haunt us tonight, so put a circle of salt around your bed and wear a crucifix. Hey, uh, you know what? I'm going to be the wild card because I think I sort of prefer the whole general wide-reaching aesthetic of the Intellivision. I kind of like the console design, not the controller, but like the casing design. I like how they sort of kept the box design uniform, simple colors and all that stuff. I like the the small cartridges. And as for the game graphics themselves, I like the fact that they kept that running man as a thing. And uh, I didn't know what other word to like describe these graphics other than slightly more elegant than Atari graphics, even a bit more than ColecoVision just because, you know, ColecoVision games, you know, they, they had better graphics technically, but uh, I think the styles were kind of all over the map. Mm-hmm. I think uh, just speaking again as a, <laughs> a 90s gamer kid, um, I, I, I would be more attracted oh. to Intellivision games. Also, one point in favor of the Intellivision, if you're a kid and playing pretend, mm-hmm. that has two phones in it. You'd be like, hello, of Mr. Course. President. <laughs> yes, of course. I'll be there immediately. <laughs> and then you hang it up. Yeah. Uh, there you go. I think that's our cue. We'll leave with that. Uh, thank you once again, Adam Haverling, for uh, giving us uh, this topic. Uh, hope you did. Hope we did right by you. And uh, that'll do it for Retronauts this week. Uh, first of all, one thing: if you're listening to this right when we put it out on the day on the week, uh, in just a few days, we are heading to Philadelphia for too many games. We're doing our uh, first East Coast live show there. I'll be hosting. It's about the 3DO. Please come. You still have some time, I think, to register and get in there. It's a weekend show. We're going to be on Friday night, first night of the show at uh, 5 p.m., I believe. No other details beyond that. But uh, we will at least be there. You can at least uh, join us for about an hour, and it should be very fun. Of course, uh, we have our website, retronauts.com. You can find uh, our, our show posts there. I'll put up some notes, some of these links to things that uh, Adam gave us about this intelligent stuff. You can look at that. Uh, share your thoughts with us as well. Please leave a comment. Tell us some intelligent memories because, again, we're not all directly uh, experienced with it. But uh, if anybody else was a little bit older, was in it at the time, please go ahead. We love that. We're also on oh, Twitter. Yeah. Retronauts on Twitter. Um, you know, Same thing there. You can tweet us. Uh, we retweet uh, lots of things. We tell you what's going on. Uh, stream-wise, whatever else we want to do. And, um, yeah, good stuff. Uh, of course, we're on Twitch. Bob, you were planning a stream oh, as yeah. of this recording. Yes, I'm going to be streaming Pac-Man 2, The New Adventures, a okay. really weird, wacky, interactive cartoon-type yep. game. Yep. Um, it's going to happen after Summer game. Sorry, after Summer Games Done Quick is over. Right. I don't want to interfere with them because they're raising money for cancer. Right. And I'm just a dude. Yes. Uh, so stay tuned to uh, social media channels for the announcement for that. Yes. Uh, on the other hand, I might uh, stream something that aforementioned uh, PS4 Bomb Jack. Uh, previously, I did Rygar on PS4. Bomb Jack was the next game I was waiting for. So I might uh, do that. Uh, maybe even the middle of Summer Games Done Quick. Because I don't really. <gasps> Ray, the I cancer. Mean, it's just. It's, it's <laughs> look. I won't look down on you. Come on. <laughs> 
I, I finally have a streaming setup available, so I could stream something too, but I have no idea what to stream. I don't know. Ask our loving fans. They will tell you. All right, everyone, leave yeah. a comment in the blog. Tell me what I need to stream for your entertainment. I mean, there's the next uh, episode of Pocket that we're going to do next is about a good SNES games that I may also stream at Ooh, some point. you here. should. So, you know, anything like that, we don't have to necessarily always stream things related to episodes. We do whatever we like because we're adults and we're cool. But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Elsewhere on Twitter, I am personally RDBAAA. You can find my funny stuff on there. Uh, Bob, who are you? I am Bob Servo on Twitter, yes. and uh, you can read my stuff at Something Awful and US Gamer. I work there now yeah. for at least a I few I think you months, mean so at US Gamer and Something Awful. Uh, oh, man. Uh, top billing. Now I'm getting you gotta, uh, you, you got to get the priorities yeah. right there. Bob Mackey. That's right. That's... Go to US Gamer first and then, you know, tab browsing. That's going in your employee <laughs> review. <laughs> Boy, uh, if we did employee <laughs> reviews, you'd be in so much trouble. Oh, boy. Uh, so Jer- many seminars. <laughs> Jeremy, who are you on Twitter, and what do you do for a living? I am GameSpite on Twitter, and for a living, I'm Bob's boss at US Gamer, and then I do some yes. other stuff on the side, <laughs> such as Retronauts. <laughs> That's all he does. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't actually do anything for the site. I just tell Bob what to do. It's pretty great. Yeah. Uh, sweet gig. <laughs> Uh, we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash retronauts. Uh, much of the same stuff there. Just another place to f- track us. Please like us and all that stuff. And on iTunes as well. We do have a listing on iTunes. That's a good uh, way to boost our popularity by giving us good reviews. Uh, five stars, 900 stars, whatever works for you. Either one is fine. And uh, yeah, it's always good. helps us a lot. Of course, we do have lots of great fans to begin with. And we always appreciate you no matter what. And uh, yeah, that's about it. We'll talk some more about other things we could plug, perhaps on the next episode of Pocket, which will be about Skyblazer, this great Super NES game. On behalf of Bob and Jeremy, thanks guys for joining me, of course, and thanks once again to Adam. I'm Ray Barnholt. We'll see you next time on Retronauts. Retronauts.